I saw three fools come swearing in, come faring in, come blaring in. I saw three fools come swearing in on Hagimapod in the morning. And on they came opposing fast, they choosing fast and snoozing last. And on they came opposing fast on Pod in the morning. And all the while mistakes were made, the dates were wrong, the names mislaid. And all the while mistakes were made on Peggy Mumford in the morning. So join us now in listening to Green Gents. Really, one word. Shit. I can't believe all this is going to happen on our third final festive revolution. The first unbelievable fact is Tarby's jacket. Well, it's gorgeous. Chicken bovril, do we think? Yes, <laughs> actually. <laughs> this sketch they've put together is the televisual equivalent of being force-fed mescaline, then strapped down and made to watch Hellraiser, Society, and House of a Thousand Corpses all at the same time. My God! And the conductor, Russell, clearly a typical quiet conductor. You know, very modest, very softly spoken, and clearly about as interesting as angling bait. Exit! Stage left! Are you all right? Hello and welcome to the final episode of this year's Peggy Mount Calamity Hour Christmas Crackers, which means it's Christmas Day tomorrow. <sighs> I'm Dr. Velvet. I'm Blackout. And we're here because we've just searched this season's Radio Times from cover to cover for TV goodies to highlight, and we've yet to take the top off the pen. On a more positive note, we're joined by a man whose baubles are more sparkly than Liberace's ring. Yes, it's the third wise man of TV reviews, Mr. Ozzy Bognops. Gentlemen, Felicitous festive greetings to you both. And to you, sir. And we make no and comment about Liberace's ring. I have that stuffed and mounted for my pension. <laughs> right? There you go. There you go. Uh, all, all your Christmas shopping done, all sorted? Both of them, yes. Good, good. Yes, yes. You got the and kettle you? then? I, I got, and and, and the, the crate, yes, indeed. But there we are. I tell you what, though, I'm thirsty. Yes, hello to you, dear listener, and thank you for dropping into our festive critical mauling of Yuletide television, where Britain's best-loved tinsel-covered battle axe is never far from the tree, because here, all glittering roads lead to the mountain. If you go over to PeggyManPod.com, info for the episode we're discussing is in the show notes, you can find us on the socials, get in touch to say hello, or ask us why we haven't decided which Bond film to tape over with today's Bond film yet. And before we invite far more people around than we're comfortable with, so we just spend the evening necking drinks in the corner, gentlemen, I've got to ask, what are we drinking? Well, my tour of the supermarkets continues... Right. ...with a, a little offering from Harvey Nicks. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's Harvey Nichols Bordeaux Superior and Bistro à Vin. Nice. Yeah, this suggested table wine, but even so, tis a robust red and a suitable accompaniment to a hot beef sandwich and a Benson and Hedges tab. And I see you've got a slice of orange in it. Classy, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, Darcy Bognobs. Terps, uh, I'm sorry, port... I going to say you've upgraded. Neither would surprise me. Downgraded, actually, because this stuff still fucking tastes like Terps. But never mind. It's doing the job, it's hitting the spot, and I'm on the second bottle. Excellent. Oh, nice one, nice one. Mr Blackout? Uh, well, today I've got a bottle of Christmas Ale by the Shepherd Neen Brewery in Faversham. They have been up all night thinking of that name. They have, yeah. Yeah, indeed. I, um, I had a brewery tour at their place once and I ended up being sick on their doorstep. True story. Right, so, clutching our glasses, it's time for our festive offering, which quite simply is 1970s ITV and tinsel. Process that information as you see fit, and for those of you who insist on an excessive amount of alcohol consumption now and again, fill your boots. You'll need it. On the buses, 
All-Star Comedy Carnival was a festive special from various companies in the ITV network, hosted by Jimmy Tarbuck, who's joined by a wealth of studio guests from the world of light entertainment and featuring an array of specially filmed Christmas sketches from sitcoms of the era. Deftly scheduled so there's enough time to have lunch, watch The Queen, fall asleep in front of a film, wake up and uncork a fresh bottle of port, this show was given a place right at the top of the tree, going out on the third channel at a quarter to six on Christmas Day 1972. Introduced by the old JT himself, Jimmy Tarbuck. Right from the offset, I couldn't believe what I was watching. Well, I mean, I have to say this. Um, Thames Television, from whom it stemmed, because it was Ronnie Aldrich and it was all, the, all, the, all that stuff, um, they had been on the air since 1968. Uh, The other thing that happened in 1968 was the establishment of the Trade Descriptions Act. Join these two facts together and you have this programme. Right. The first unbelievable fact is Tarby's jacket. Well... It's gorgeous. Chicken bovril, do we think? Yes, (laughs) actually. Well, chicken oxo. I'd say chicken oxo. All right, okay. Yeah, it's it's not quite as cloying as the chicken bovril, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not even that. It's not even that on its own. It's like, Tarby, mate, you can have the yellow blazer and the bottle green tie, or you can have the yellow blazer and the maroon flared slacks, but you can't have all three together. <laughs> right? Because it'll actually burn the computer screen whilst we watch it <laughs> 50 years later. And on top of that, he's wearing a white shirt with a collar so high it looks like a neck brace. Yes. Indeed, yes. he looks like he's into caravanning, if we're going to be honest. However, gentlemen... <laughs> If you remember, not so long ago, we did, in fact, <laughs> this time fucking last year, we did the similar offering from the BBC from the same year. Yeah. And I have to say, this one has a far better signature tune than the BBC's offering. Agreed. I'll Fair. give it that. Marred yeah. only by David Pissing Hamilton doing the voiceovers. <laughs> I thought that was Diddy. He was a Thames employee as much as he was a BBC radio employee. It was a, quite astonishing. The man got everywhere, like like sort of cigar smoke. Because I was wondering if he was on Capital at this point, which would explain why he was gigging on the ITV. No, but, he was on yeah. Radio 1, actually, at this point. Then he went to Radio 2 and then to Capital after that, I think. Right. OK, so essentially what we've got here is a setup. And as Tarby explains, we're in his house. Oh, yes, we're in his house. We believe you, Tarby. We believe you. Well, this is it. It's the thing that Scylla went on to do. In, uh, in the next decade um, and it's exactly the kind of thing that Partridge would then take the piss out of the decade Indeed. after that uh, very much here here's a studio replica of the house I wish I lived in yes Indeed. And however, the the bonus here is we haven't got a load of breakdancing kids in knitwear, which has to be a bonus. Yes. It really does. Yes, yes, it really does. Does. E- Even if the bar, even if the bar is a massive letdown, this is my bar. It's a shelf, Jimmy. Yeah. It's a shelf <laughs> with nine <laughs> bottles of Verve Clico on it, otherwise known yeah. as ITV Mineral Water. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> but the fact that for me, yes, this was Tarby at his usual best doing the patter that was typical for him for decades with the trademark stare at the camera after every joke. He would stare at the camera. Ted Rogers would flash his eyebrows. Les Dawson didn't have to do anything. Tommy Cooper had to laugh. You know, they all had their trademark way of reacting to a joke. But Tarby's was always just to stare at the camera with a sort of wide-eyed gawkiness and let the audience take over, which they did because they were completely shit-faced, evidently. He does seem to have this sort of affectation after a punchline where he's got, like, weirdly sort of camp flourishes. Yes. I've got written on my notes, what is it with the hand movements? Because he toned those, he toned those right down by the time he was hosting Live from Her Majesty's. We didn't get all that, he wasn't as physical. But the hands are gone as if he's lost the orchestra. You couldn't lose that, boggers. I mean, my God. (laughs) Now, yeah, so as you say, he comes on, he's doing this um, very short stand-up set, just to kind of, you know, warm things up, set the stage kind of thing. Um, It's It's such a short stand-up set, it's one foot. It's, it's fine. It's very basic. Sort of working men's club, cheeky one-liners. I think his delivery saves it completely here. I enjoyed this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It does. It, it does save it. Uh, but it is weak for Tarby, because I don't think he's a bad comedian, if I'm honest. I don't mind Tarby, as a rule. Agreed. But this is weak. I'm with you on that. But I, I, I didn't see it as that weak. But, um, you know, we have to think that the BBC were putting the two Ronnies up against this, and they had very sophisticated patter compared to what he did. 
Well, usually well, they do. That. Not on that particular show, because we've covered that. <laughs> well, this is true. I think they just put out everything that existed at the, uh, of the tape. That was it. In, well, to be fair, in a similar vein, I think, as we surmised last time that the two Ronnie show was all one take, so was fucking this. Yes, correct. <laughs> and I think not only was it one take, but all the bits in between were basically part of the same take. It felt like that. This is essentially a compilation show of written scripts, especially for the show, but really highlights. It's a catalogue of ITV programming. Mm -hmm. A snapshot, if you will, of um, four years into the new progressive contract. Right. Speaking of progressive... Ha! (laughs) Yes. Thy neighbour Walk up and say How be ya Gee, but I'm glad The first clip we get is from the in 1972, currently very successful sitcom, Love Thy Neighbour. 21 seconds, gentlemen. 20 Was it 21? seconds. <clears throat> you're, going to say, you're going to say the same as me. 21 seconds, we have racism and sexual assault. Correct. <laughs> 21 seconds. Now, yeah. I never watched any of this, because, again, by the time I was watching TV and paying attention to it, it wasn't really being repeated. Um, same. It was repeated a couple of times, I think. Uh, okay. Well, it's more probably that my parents wouldn't just weren't interested, so it never crossed my path, you know. But in very recent years, I've skimmed over a couple of opinion pieces and retrospectives, and they frame Love Thy Neighbour as a sort of playful study of fragile masculinity, and also saying that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the xenophobia isn't really that important. Da, da, da. For clarity, this is a subpar domestic sitcom with casual racism and sexual assault as its USP. This is <laughs> fucking dreadful. Discuss. 12 points. <laughs> Similar to yourself, I have read copious amounts of documentation about the argument a la Alf Garner that this was designed as an ironic comment about the average 1970s racist attitudes. Uh, but quite frankly, for a start, yes, there's the sexual assault, I'm uncomfortable with the language that's used. This is awful, this. One of the biggest problems I see is the repertory company that are involved in this, like Tommy Godfrey playing Tommy Godfrey, you know, and all of these people. I mean, why does Smethurst all of a sudden have a very posh accent when he's not talking to his mates? Why? Well, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> the only saving grace... I have with this is I will never tire of watching Rudolph Walker. Oh, no, right. absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, you I'm, know, I'm with you. I'd happily watch him in literally anything else. So. What I will say is, similar to an eating session on um, on one of those programmes, what's it called? I've got no money left, so fly me to Australia. Mm. You eat a really bad bit of food, but then you counteract that. You, you, you cleanse your palate with something sweet and really quite well made. Yes, now we're cooking. Hello, Rodhull. Yes, uh, all of a sudden, back to Tarby, and sadly, the smell of sweaty taffeta as he enters with the fucking emu. <laughs> Not a fan then, Ozzy? Well, there's a, there's a simple reason for that. A friend of mine, very close friend of mine, actually was in... I, I subsequently discovered, since you did Emu's All Life Pink Windmill show that he was in a shopping centre somewhere where Rod Hull and Emu were making a guest appearance with the cameras making a, a, a section for this and said all I could remember was the over, overbearing smell of sweaty taffeta and that stuck with me. Exquisite puppetry are the words that I'd use. The bird's personality is as chaotic as ever and it's the fact that Hull is just surgically deadpan while he's performing this. It's yeah, sublime. Well, that to was watch. His, that was the reason because that's that's how he did it. He let the bird speak by not speaking, mm-hmm. and the odd sort of twitch of the head, like get this one. That was it. There was that, and then there was the impressions, and then there was the uh, you know, and then the the big slosh. That that was it. And also, for all he had a deadpan face, the cue cards he was reading out, uh, the Tarby was reading off, were clearly over Rod's shoulder. <laughs> No, it, it's a nice little bit of chaos that we need. Do you know what, though? This this gets the mood right. It's it's Christmas, it's 1972, you know, or let's have just have a bit of madness, seasonal madness. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I, I began my comments very much on the negative. This is very much a positive out of that, yeah. I would suggest. And I know it's intentional, 
but emu with the comedy teeth is fucking terrifying. Yes, yes. <laughs> I do agree. And the joke that actually made me laugh out loud was ostracised and immunised. That yes. was very clever, and that yes. actually caught me amidships, and I thought, okay, <laughs> mildly forgiven, because he, he primed a lot of it to a fine art. I mm-hmm. agree with you on that. Left me cold, but you have to admire the skill and the reaction of the audience. Bit of trivia for you, though. Rod Hull wasn't born in Hull, but on the Isle of Sheppey in Kent. Yeah, ironically enough, he went on to sue a man called Rod Sheppey from Hull who tried to steal his act. Completely wiped the guy out. Brutal. It's true, though. You can look it up. I think I will. I think you're better. <laughs> now, like any other waveform, we've gone up, we've hit a peak, now we've got to dip into a trough. Yep, here we go. Not just a trough, we're actually in magma territory, this. I mean, the, the barrel doesn't even have a bottom. We are now at the Earth's core. <laughs> yeah. I will say, uh, if this, if the title of this sitcom appeared on one of our production lists for another episode, I will not be partaking of Nearest and Dearest. I couldn't, because I couldn't offer any single positive thing about it, so it would be too... Uh, now, again, you yeah. see, I've never watched this. For whatever reason, it was slightly either before my time or just not on in the house or fine, you know, there we go um, I've heard of it and obviously I know the names of the people who were in it this, what, how long is it, sort of four, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes yeah. four hours I started hyperventilating <laughs> watching this this now, sketch they've put together is the televisual equivalent of being force fed mescaline, then strapped down and made to watch Hellraiser, Society and House of a Thousand Corpses all at the same time my God! We should probably we should probably explain. It's basically the four main cast members of Nearest and Dearest. Um, it's Christmas Day. They're having a bit of a reminisce, and they sort of weirdly kind of flash back to their childhood. At which point, you then get the four elderly cast members dressed in what I can only assume is like Victorian urchins' clothes. Yep, yep, yep. And yeah, they're just acting really fucking sinister. Yeah, like properly. I'm, I'm, I'm sweating while I'm watching this. This is awful. Hilda Baker, Jimmy Jewell, et al. Playing infant versions of themselves, yeah. trampling over each other's lines. Yeah. But you know what? This is in keeping with the chaos of the episodes themselves from the regular series because they were just like this. Okay, fair play. But what they did with this sketch was they used every single catchphrase that they had amassed in the series. Yes. Right. To make the script. I must get a little hand put on this watch. She knows you know. All this kind of stuff. And it just it just it dried me up. Now, it's well known, of course, as I'm sure Dr. Velvet would uh, clarify, that by this point, Hilda Baker and Jimmy Jewell utterly detested one another and actually refused to speak to one another on set whilst they were being directed. I wish they refused to speak full stop. Yes. Because it's clear yeah, well, they yes. detest the audience at this point. No, I think yeah. the audience... Dete- There's a simmering hate between them and the audience, which <laughs> bubbles up just as it starts to end. But, you know, it's it's like 40s jokes, 1940s jokes, and they're just dredging up the catchphrases of the series. And, you know, that'll do. It just had a major feeling of that'll do. And I didn't want that because I wanted to like this, but I didn't like it then, and I didn't like it now. But again, it's that thing where, you know, it was successful at the time. So they've commissioned a sketch from them. They've written a sketch. They've handed that in. It's like, ah, oh, it's too late. We've got to use it now. Okay, fine. Yeah, people will like it. Whatever. The fans of the show will like it. That's all right. They um, will, uh, but it does speak volumes about the quality of the writing when the punchline at the end of the sketch is a pie in the face. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Absolutely. But we're saved a little bit. We by are. Moira Anderson next. Moira! A little bit of Moira. Yep. She's been up since 3 a.m. doing her hair. Uh-huh. Um, a dress but, that a mother clearly chose for her. Absolutely, but what a voice. <laughs> what a voice that woman's I got. I refuse to say anything critical or funny about this because I love it. And, I mean, the only thing the only thing that got me, apart from the magnificent Ronnie Aldridge and his even more magnificent sideburns, are the backing singers who appear to be super glued together on a step three miles away. <laughs> This is the thing, right? It's just this straight musical number back in the studio. Um, and Moira is fucking belting this out. Yeah. 
It's not a particularly fast, jaunty song. It's Silver Bells, okay? Yeah. I think it's a combination of the power of her voice and the fact that there's a full fucking orchestra in the studio yeah. is what stops this dying on its ass. Because in any other programme, this would be like where, you know, the wheels start to come off a bit. Because, you know, in years to come, they'd cut to Lena Zavaroni while the audience slips into a coma. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. Even this, you know, which is really hard to make cheap, they made cheap. How did they do this, apart from the super-glued backing singers? They brought the band lights up for eight and a half bars of music, and then they snapped the buggers right back down so everybody's eyes were on Moira. Father to your father next. Question, who remembers it? Me. They repeated this forever during the late 70s, early 80s, because it was harmless television, like so much of this. Now, this is another one. I never watched this back in the day, but... Mm -hmm. Fuck me, what is this? Yes, yes, yes. I did, re- I, I do remember it. I did watch it as a child. Right. It used to be on. It used to be on. It was repeated. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Mr Bognops, but there was a period of time when it was in the sons and daughters slot. Yes, it was. Absolutely. That was archive time, you know. It was either Man in a Suitcase or, um, you know, the, the Saint or Father Dear Father, or On the Buses. It was always that, that, that slot, the sons and daughters slot, the gems slot. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I that's how I became familiar with it. Coming from school, and there it would be on at 3.30, and it was just this thing that was on. Um, so is this, I was gr- is this mm-hmm. what the show was? Yes. Yes. Just this yes. Like, domestic farce yep. with a lot of shrieking and two young blonde women saying daddy enough to make it really fucking creepy. Patrick Cargill playing overacting class number 3,486. This is the thing, mind. I only really know Patrick Cargill uh, from when he was in The Prisoner. Yep, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching him this, and I'm just like, he looks and acts like he should be an officer on the Death Star. Right. I want, yeah. I yeah. want Disney to make a traditional British sitcom set in that era of the Galactic Empire. I want a CGI Cargill to just be this hapless lieutenant trying to hold his department together while Peter Cushion's Tarkin is like, you know, the evil boss of the sitcom. Yeah, I, yeah, I want yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. 22 right. episodes, half hour each, bosh, off you go. Now, yeah. this being Thames, of course, they had something that the BBC could not afford to use, which was outside videotape. Yeah. So when they go out to the pond, whatever the hell that was all about, a foray outside on VT. Now, you wouldn't get that at the Beeb. But they then bring it back down to Thames Earth with this why the shimmering fuck ends are all dog foods on television called doggy chunks. <laughs> I love that this is I love that this is your breaking point. <laughs> well, what makes it even worse is let's stick a Santa on top of it. No, that's a chocolate cock. <laughs> it's a chocolate cock! He has mixed the turps in with the port, hasn't he? <laughs> hey, mm-hmm. don't knock mm-hmm. it until you've tried it. <laughs> Let's get away from that. Let's get away from it because it was, yeah, it was. We, we, we're running on a constant here. Yeah. Um, but never mind, never mind. We move on to the next sketch, which of course is uh, acclaimed comedian, Mr. Harry Worth. That's right. Uh, I instantly thought this was going to be the your crackers my lord sketch from the two ronnies no it mm. felt it, it it felt like it felt like it had you know it had this is literally the that. first point in my notes for this ah <laughs> <laughs> now i will I, I have a confession to make i fell asleep during this sketch so did harry worth <laughs> right behind his eyes <laughs> I woke up when the audience were clapping to mark the end of the sketch. Okay. And and you know what? I didn't go back and rewatch it because I thought my falling asleep is my comment. With the best will in the world. I kind of enjoyed it, but it is so drawn out. It's really just a platform for Harry Worth to just show off for four minutes. Just batters yeah. and forwards across the table, just getting like rapidly far more pissed than anyone can in that time. I would know. Have um, either of you gentlemen ever seen Dinner for One? No. A famous no. sketch starring Freddie Frinton as a butler who's serving drinks to a woman on her 90th birthday party and her four favourite guests, they've all died, so he has to impersonate them all and there's a toast for every course. So basically it's a drunk sketch. He gets drunker and drunker and drunker. Right. This is basically the Thames Television bargain basement version of that. And the only problem is, I mean, I, my first note unlike yours, gentlemen, said everything a comedian should be except funny. 
<laughs> but Harry Worth was, I think, I think, and somebody will corroborate this. I think Harry Worth was the first BBC export to Thames, and then followed Morecambe and Wise, Mike Yarwood, Dick Emery, and so it went on. But Harry Worth was the first, and they thought, great, he was a massive, roaring success in the sixties on on BBC. Let's have him; he'll be amazing. And he plummeted so quickly. But the the fact that they used a cheap knockoff version of Dinner for One really annoys me. However, when she said, "Oh, he's a cunning old devil," I You're reading really, the second line of my notes. I really did wonder what she was going to say at that point. Yes, because <laughs> it's again. She's got a line a bit further on where she goes, coming as he does from a long line of cutthroats. I'm like, where are we going? (laughs) (laughs) See, I wish I'd stayed awake for this. I might have enjoyed that. Well, don't go back and do it again because, you know, it'll be tarnished. You'll feel that that sense of somnambulism and you won't be able to sleep ever again, basically. To be fair, because this is Harry Worth literally with William Mervyn at one end of the table, Mona Washbourne at the other end. There is some back and forth in this. Yeah, unlike, but... Unlike Nearest and Dearest, where it was just four people in straight clown mode, we've at least got a couple of straight men in this sketch. It sort of works for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not back and forth, it's just fourth. To, to, to move this along a little bit, I, I laughed my guts out, I cheered my guts out. Yes, gentlemen, we've reached another peak in the waveform. We have... We certainly have. Mm-hmm. Now, I've written down here, and I'm sure that it's on your notes as well. At this point, I felt like two hours had elapsed, and I wondered if we were going to survive the rest. And all of a sudden, we cut to Birmingham and lunchtime with Wogan, mid-song with a particularly funky band accompanying Carl Wayne and Penny Lane. Daddy, let your hair hang down. There's no setup for them two singing this song. We just sort of cut no. in, like, as you say, mid-song, and you're like... Right, okay. Carl Wayne's yep. hair is fucking beautiful. I'm getting that. Isn't it? Do you know who he reminded me of? A kind of more with it Tony Soper. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. first question to the group. Is yes. Wogan pissed here? Yes. Right. Very probably, yes. Right. Very okay. probably. And also, what's my follow-up question, my bonus question to that is, what the fuck is he wearing? An orange check shirt and a dark brown jacket with a mahogany hairdo. Beautiful. <laughs> It's the 70s, it's brown, isn't it? It is. And then speaking of brown, on comes the brownest actor ever to appear in Crossroads, Amy Turtle, who, uh, there's a famous anecdote about her, which I'm sure you've both heard. Chris Tarrant told it on a documentary at some point. Um, She could not remember a line. She couldn't put one line uh, next to another. She was terrible. So she used to write her lines on her cuffs and on the inside of her hands and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And... um, there's this wonderful moment where they're doing a, a shot in the foyer of Crossroads and Meg's on the phone going, hello, yes, who you want to ruin chalet for? And Amy Turtle's got the, the, the vacuum cleaner out in the background going, rawr, rawr, rawr. and the director goes, what the hell's going on? What's she doing? Could you just not do it as much? Yeah, okay, 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 all right. And then they don't, right, take two. Uh, yeah, Sandy, could you go and check out in the in the uh, the restaurant? And she's walking around with a vacuum. He goes, "What the hell are you doing? You're not even supposed to be in this scene." And it says in the script. No, now it says here in me words. Uh, Amy is hoovering in the background. Oh my god! <laughs> True story. I love that they're getting people in for like fifteen second turns at this point. Yes, yes, Morgan, yes. Morgan knows. He's got about... He's been given, like, the longest stretch in all of this. That's fine. And the phone books come out, and he's like, I want him, I want him, I want her, I want her, I want her. Oh, yeah, Get yeah. them all in. We've got Linda Bellingham and Judy Buxton yes. off of General Hospital. Again, Indeed. they're on there. 15 seconds, they get a line each, so they get paid more, then they're off. My grandmother used to love General Hospital. She was so did to I used to love it. I used to watch it. More importantly, gentlemen, more importantly... Uh, we cut to a shot of the audience because Terry Wogan in his little persona there wants to get some people in. This is sketch, this kind of sketch thing they've got going on. Yeah. Um, they're going to play a game, which I'm assuming was a feature on Wogan's little show each week. Yeah. Um, we go into the crowd and we meet uh, Dame Peggy Mount herself. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Here she there is. There she is. There she is. With Leslie Crowther, no less. Wearing a yellow Stetson for some reason. Why is he? Why is he wearing that hat? He looks like he's escaped from a mental unit. 
this descends into beautiful Christmas chaos. Mm-hmm. It does. Be- because before you even get time to breathe, we get a nice bit of shtick from Mount and Crowther and all the rest of it. But then fucking Lionel Blair turns up. Yes. Yep. Again, for 15 seconds. It's beautiful. Yes. <laughs> and and I'll tell you what, my Mount is a presence, you know, a, a shining presence on that stage. But Larry Grayson steals the entire gig. Oh, before that... We've also got some Hugh Lloyd and Anne Aston that come on. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You've missed out the most important person, Blackout, and that is my childhood crush, Sylvia Sims. Oh, God. Ever since she watched John Mills drink a glass of Heineken in a film, um, she was just my absolute total crush. Fair. However, Doctor, I think you were about to lay claim to the biggest trumper of the lot in this particular chaotic farce. I mean, he just walks in there and steals the show. Mr Larry Grayson, there he is, dressed as Zorro. Sinister as fuck, and I'm absolutely here for it. He's magnificent. He looks sinister yeah. as fuck. Wogan looks terrified, and I'm I'm not in the least surprised. I was too by this point, because I did not know where this was going to go. Larry even looks like he doesn't know what's going on. Yes. I mean, I know that's part that's, of the routine. Yeah. But he, he's, like, totally, totally confused. And Wogan's like, are you OK? Well, yes, I'm ready for anything like this. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's magnificent. And off he goes. He steals the show. But then again, f- to add further fuel to this chaotic fire, Noel Gordon pops up. I know. Yep, Noel Gordon comes on. Um, Amy Turtle's back with a tea trolley. And yes. then it's all in for a sing-song of Jingle Bells. And I'm like, yeah. this is barely controlled chaos. And it is fantastic. And the start of it is the most controlled chaos of the lot because director trying his best to make it look like the audience are having a lovely time. Uh, (laughs) Terry Wogan said, so, are you going to all join in for a sing-song? And there's a panning shot across the audience and there's one very firm bloke who literally says, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Full props to that man, absolutely. Because at this point, the drugs were kicking in, I tell you, to me. I bet you wish the drugs would have kicked in for the next bit. Although, oh, yes. before you even start, I didn't mind this. No, nor did I. Again, yeah, we're back in the studio. We cut to the other bit, which in any other Christmas show would be like where I go out get another beer or whatever. It's the Wandsworth School Choir. And first thing I'm thinking is, school choir. Some of these are in their fucking 40s. Are they the teachers? Actually, yes. Yes, yes. There's 45 of them on the stage. Fair play. Um... This is like playing Guess Who, but the only questions you're allowed to ask are about the haircuts. Yes! <laughs> right. we, are, we are going the full gamut of 1972 here. We're going from mod to rocker, from sitcom dad to serial killer. It is fucking yeah, yeah. crackers. And yeah. basically we're going from riding helmet to motorcycle helmet. Do you think, Nail- do you think Nail- they've just um, let them just run riot in, in the wig office down in the costume department? <laughs> No, they're all they're all auditioning for Captain Zep, which isn't due to happen for another uh, eleven years. But you know, well. <laughs> and the conductor Russell, clearly a typical choir conductor, you know, very modest, very softly spoken, and clearly about as interesting as angling bait. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So they do yeah. their bit, and then a segment which would be traditionally boring, but. Kind of isn't, you know, they're, they're decent enough. Um, uh-huh. It's lifted a bit further when Tarby comes in to sing with them. Yes. You get what I think is a decent bit of back and forth as Tarby right. takes the piss out of the choir and they fully reciprocate. Absolutely, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Ones with kids would, that's the point. And it, it, it doesn't feel forced, this. So again, we go into them doing Do Re Mi. Tarby doing Julie Andrews. Yeah, we've got the full orchestra and the full choir... And I think they're bringing the energy for this to really fucking work. And at this point, I mean, with Tarby doing Julie Andrews, I am now completely blethered, or this is bloody nuts. But, you know, why not both? (laughs) It is absolutely insane. Well, I think the reason why not both comes with the next entry into Tarby's mythical flat. I enjoyed this because it was brief and it was absolutely crackers. There was no need for it whatsoever. Yeah, we got a... We got, you know, a ding dong at the door. Then yeah. we get Bob Todd coming in is what is supposed to be a pissed milkman. Yes. He just comes off as someone who needs urgent psychiatric care. Well, Tarby, for this segment, is just standing there and letting it all happen. It's great. Yep. 
Because he's terrified. Because Bob Todd was such an overbearing character in how he played things. Didn't know what was going to happen. And I don't blame him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he was he was magnificent in that. Was It was like Mr Blobby. Yes. A little moment. Yeah, it was, yeah. uh-huh. yes. even with the Even with the, the knock at the door. It yeah. was Noel's house party, you know. <laughs> So we've had we, we've had a bit of a high, gentlemen. We've had a bit of a high. We've had yeah. the Wogan segment. We've had the choir, which was all right. We've had yeah. Bob Todd. Hey, hey, let's yeah. jump off the cliff. Yeah, we go to a proper VC segment now, where Tarby introduces a, a sketch from On the Buses. Now, this is outside, so it's all shot on film, and it's shot at night, so we're back into horror movie territory. Here we yeah. are. Not only are we on horror in horror movie territory, what makes it horror movie territory is that Bob Grant has his own teeth at this point. <laughs> well, I believe this this little segment was shot on a budget of about three pound fifty, and there's somebody missing. Basically, the man who for whom it was created, Reginald Varney Esquire. Thank you. What the this? hell? Who's that driver with Stan? Has Red Giovanni left by this point, or was he just yes, not there? Yes, he'd, he'd left. Ah, no, he'd okay. left by this point. At this point, uh, the sitcom itself had shifted in its focus. So by this point, Stan, Stan, the Red Giovanni character, yes, uh-huh. has left. Blakey has moved in with Stan's mother and Olive. Uh, Olive's husband, Arthur. Arthur, yes. Arthur's left Olive. So you've essentially got Blakey and the man, Doris Hare, you've got Olive, and you've got Bob Grant's character. Now, at this time, Stephen Lewis and Bob Grant are writing on the buses. Yes. Ah, OK. This yeah. perhaps explains why Stephen Lewis in this comes off like a Cenobite's dad. Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> and one year later, um, and, Doctor, you'll be able to put me right on this, Olive bailed on on the buses to go and join the rag trade, playing... Olive. (laughs) (laughs) But much like yourself, Mr. Bognops, I can watching this I can tell that it's scripted, but it has the air of something which is like improvised at the end of a day shooting. Because the the producer had agreed to contribute a sketch to the show and had forgotten to mention it to anyone else. If I'm flicking through my little T on screen TV guide and I flick onto this, if this was its own little thing on the schedules and I want to know what it was about. It would say the following. Approximately five minutes of shouting, an ill-timed, badly dubbed laughter track, and a goose. That's all this is. Yes, absolutely. This is it, mind. Yeah. Considering the sketch isn't really about anything, it goes on for far too long. Fucking hell. The thing is, absolutely. LWT at this point was the last shop in town, and Michael Grade has written this in his autobiography. They had to put out everything they made. They could not put stuff on the shelf or take risks or cancel stuff. They had to literally make everything, force feed it and put out everything, which is why on the buses were still going, um, even though that had been on like the second or third night of London Weekend Television. And the Fen Street Gang, which was a spin-off of Please Sir, of course. Yeah. Um, so that you can just tell it's, it's hanging on for grim death at this point, and so are the audience. But we've had the low, so it's time for another high. Yeah, yeah. Are we going to get one? I think we do. David Nixon, the famed magician. Um, Now, I have very hazy memories of this chap because when I was a kid, he wasn't really in in prominence. I think the best years of his career had passed by then. Totally. But at this point, do you know what? Forget your David Copperfields and all that grandiose stuff. This is nice magic. This is the thing, right? I, I don't really... No Nixon, because for my generation it was like Paul Daniels. Um, okay, that's right. But I'm watching this and I fucking love this. He's just mm, got this yeah. perfect lightness of touch for talking to the audience. Yeah, Tarly's basically of touch. gone out Good to, to pay Good the cab fare. So Nixon yeah. just gets the stage to himself, and it's marvellous. Indeed, charming is the word I wrote down. Yeah, if we follow on from one nice piece again to a lovely piece, however all too brief, I thought. And this is the moment where I think all three of us can safely agree that anything that features this man makes you sit up and take notice. Of Whatever course. glop has come before, this is the moment. This is it. Absolutely. Mr. Les Dawson appears and gives us a lovely little 
seasonal ramble. Um, mm-hmm. But again, I thought we, we go from him to a musical number and he appears at the end of the musical number, having nothing to do with the musical number. Uh, I was disappointed by... On the buses gets five minutes, Dawson gets about two minutes. Again, it's just him doing like his club set. There is nothing is. pioneering about this then or now. But again, you know, it's done with such love that I can't help but go with it. I'm fine, you know. I oh, don't yeah. think you can really stretch that out for too long because it's exactly what Tarby was doing at the top of the show. I love that the set slides together. I, I think that's a nice touch. Yes, yes. Very yes, Yorkshire television. Like Part of me wishes that he had had Jimmy Tarbuck's audience, as it sounds like there's only 28 of the buggers in there, um, which there probably is, with room for the set, the band, and him. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a moment he talks about the dolls, and he says, and now I had to wind back and listen to this twice. He says, the batteries are £6 each. And I had to listen twice, because I'm sure he said the bastards are £6 each. Yep, snap. Same here. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you mentioned the the audience. Uh, you mentioned the audience, but there's 28 of them. Um, there's eight of them by the time we get to Tony Jacklin singing. <laughs> why is why is Tony... I mean, I get the golf reference, of course. Uh, Tarby, golfing chums and all the rest of it. They've they've got pissed up at the 19th hole one night, and he's gone, I'll get you on the show. Come on the show. You know what? I'm fine with this. I think this works really well. He introduces Tony Jacklin. He comes in. A vision in brown and beige. He looks like a British reboot of Magnum. It is glorious. Yeah. Now, you do know that, I mean, one of the other reasons is that Jacqueline fancied himself as an entertainer. He really fancied himself as an entertainer. Mm-hmm. To the point he made uh, a record. It's just as well that he can't really tell jokes. As you say, they've got kind of pissed up. But one thing he has done, clearly for laughs, is stuffed five sets of golf socks down his jeans. Don't, don't. This is the thing, right? Because I'm like, those stay-press phone slags, mm. they're the Christmas treat. Because apart from anything else, when he sits down on that sofa, we're all left looking at the last turkey in the shop. Right, right. We are, yeah. And he Good sings Lord. and talks with a mildly, uh, with a faintly American accent, which is not bad, considering, <laughs> of course, he was born in Scunthorpe. <laughs> See, I, again, I didn't mind it. Jacqueline's comedy timing, I didn't think was that bad here. His delivery lacks confidence... And his deadpan face between punchlines is fucking non-existent. But you know what? Yeah. He's a golfer. I can't fault him for that. <laughs> but that's the thing. In those days, golfers had to do the after-dinner circuit. Sports people did the after-dinner circuit. That's yeah. how they made their money alongside losing tournaments, if you were mm-hmm. English. Um, so the fact is, I think, you know, you had to have a fund of stories. You had to have a, a fund of reactions. And, yeah. you know, he has them. Yes. However, the song that they sing ends with three words that give me serious gut rot. I mean, I had to go to the toilet at this point. I know, I know what you mean. Get out the champagne, he's a credit to golf and long may he reign. Whisper in the night. He was Mr. Putt, it was only that near. Guess what he said? It wasn't oh dear. Whisper in the night. And that's golf. I mean, why is it? Is that is that golf really? Okay, mate. Because anyway. I've already I've always seen golf as somewhere where you have to be very quiet and not say a fucking word while somebody s- swings a bat and hits a ball. That's because you've been practicing in the library. You've never watched celebrity golf on the BBC with Sean Connery, then? <laughs> um, ah, but I have seen yeah. Tarby's frame game. Indeed. Oh, we mourn Tarby's frame game. We really do. <laughs> Much as we mourn the death of comedy. Uh, oh, yes. Let's look on to the next segment. Yeah, we're back down again. The Fen Street Gang, of, as uh, Ozzy Bognops said earlier, spin-off from the very popular Please Sir. Um, the Fen Street Gang, it's all about the lives of the pupils as they've left school and they go on and oddly stay rigidly together. Yeah, about 30 years after, by the looks of this. Yes. Right. Exactly. right, yeah. I think this has happened because I was having a good time with the show. I'm watching this this Christmas outing for the Fen Street Gang. I've mm. never seen the Fen Street Gang before. I've not really even seen Please Sir properly, but... 
My brain cannot extrapolate from this five-minute Amdram piss-up what the regular show could possibly have had in its favour to get commissioned in the first place. Again, I am left asking, what the fuck is this? Mm -hmm. This is another one of LWT's programmes that they had to transmit. Everything, good or bad. And, you know, because Please Sir had a modicum of success, even although I believe somebody called it an incessant cataract of drivel at the time, and that was one of the nicer reviews. (laughs) For me, I think one of the principal reasons why this feels just amdram, as you say, is because the speed of the lines is clearly too fast for the one mic that appears to be being used, which appears to be under the table. I couldn't work out what was going on here. I, I There was nothing that was giving me any sort of clue as to what they were talking about or mm-hmm. what, what the little story was. It was just noise. Obviously, I had a quick shifty online. Apparently, this ran for like 40-odd episodes. And I'm thinking, yeah, how? how? Oh, I can't even yeah. imagine this well, we're lasting for, for half to leave an on the buses so she could go into this as well. I think it was basically world domination at London Weekend Television of sure. Olive. But, and I'm sure, I'm sure that's Malcolm from Science Workshop in there. I didn't <laughs> look it up. Anyway, do you know what we need right now to rescue us from this? We need Jimmy Tarbuck singing A White Christmas. We do. We do. That is. I we don't need. know where the time's gone. I don't know where the time's gone, he says. Yeah, me neither. Or the budget. However, <laughs> this this is worth sitting through one hour, 32 minutes for. Well, it is. There's, there's, a, there's a little gem tucked away in this as well. Because, obviously, the stars of the show who are in studio, they come and join him and we all have a beautiful little rendition of White Christmas yep. with each each star saying a particular line. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and Jimmy introduces them as they're about to take away their line. Myra Anderson, I'm dreaming. And we go on. He gets to Bob Todd. And my favourite character. Yes. What? <laughs> the, the, the man's name is Bob Todd. What, why, exactly. haven't you, why haven't you given this man a name? I bet there was fucking hell on when those cameras stopped. Partly fucking hell, and I also think um, they weren't turning the cards over fast enough. <laughs> I dare say. And also, at this point, with so many people singing a line each, it had to make the firing squad have a better aim. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, My only enough. regret with this is that Wogan's segment was filmed completely separately because I yeah. would fucking love to see Larry Grayson, Noel Gordon, Leslie Crowther and Peggy Mount on this stage. The, oh the finale God, yes. would go on for about ten fucking minutes if you did that, though. And I've I'd already got to feel... I've got to feel very sorry for the harpist clearly having the equivalent of a harp epileptic fit <laughs> um, before Jimmy says, good night and God bless... Wings, because you can hear it at the back, and it's getting bad. It's getting out of hand. It's like keep filling, keep filling, keep filling, keep filling. We're going to run out of videotape. Keep filling, keep filling. Good night, God bless. The end. Do you know what? You couldn't have timed that better. You're right. The end, gentlemen. What did we make of the All Star Christmas Carnival from 1972, Mr. Blackout? Well, um. I'm taking a point off for those sitcom sketches which terrified me for all the wrong reasons. But other than that, All Star Comedy Carnival is perfect. Eight out of nine. What the fuck are you on? Mr. Bognops. <laughs> nine pegs. Nine pegs. A resounding two fingers up to the BBC who had been doing this sort of thing for years. But ITV threw money at it and even if it was a bit haphazard and samey, with well-worn hack Christmas versions of current favourites, it was still a nice way to spend an hour and a half between Morecambe and Wise and Val Dunican on the other side. But Harry Worth was shite. Nine pegs. And now over to Dr Velvet to bring the average crushing right down. <laughs> All right. Nine. Norway. Times out of ten, I saturate <laughs> television reminiscences with emotional connection, and part of that is a degree of sympathy as condescending as that may sound. What I've just watched is certainly a snapshot of an era, but a painful reminder of the frankly moronic standard of comedy that was served to the general public as primetime quality comedy (laughs) around this time. I feel like playing Lander Horton Glory in the back of this. The substandard production values and writing are, quite honestly, close to an insult. Acceptable for a first-time watch on Christmas Eve if you've been out on the lash on the afternoon only. However, does have its place, and there are more high points than lows. Seven pegs. Oh, okay. All right. Where did right. seven come from? 
Because I, I was expecting it to be tipped up a bit and be one or none. Can be, for the- no, can I be honest? That seven pegs is resting heavily on the Wogan segment. Okay. Right. Yeah, for- that was beautiful in itself. Six of that. I would have definitely watched that segment for half an hour, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think they were going to put out the extant episodes of Lunchtime with Wogan as a box set. I think, I'm sure I've seen that somewhere. I'm on starter's orders. <laughs> oh, you get in the queue. Get in the queue. I'm, I'm there for that, for sure. And, of course, there are no steps up the mountain because we're already there. Hey! Oh, yes. Anyway, right, that's that. I'm just off to wrap the not-on-your-nelly box sets that I've bought for certain people's Christmas presents. But in the meantime... Blackout's got your socials. Yes, thank you once again for spending the festive season with us. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email PeggyManPod at gmail.com or we are PeggyManPod on all of your favourite social media platforms. Five-star ratings are always welcome on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to us. Don't forget to go over to PeggyManPod.com to check out the show notes for this and for all of our other episodes and maybe have a look at our online store to spend some of those pound coins you got sellotaped inside cars from your aunties. It's as simple as that. It really is. Festive thanks once again to Mr Ozzy Bognops. A pleasure, gentlemen. Lovely to see you both. And, and Yuletide greetings and festivities. Right, that's us for another set of Christmas specials. As is tradition, of course, you're welcome to join us for our Hogmanay special episode on the 31st. So do look out for that. Until then, dear listener, have an immaculate Christmas from all of us here at the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. And thank you for joining us. Until next we meet. Keep pegging. Good night and God bless. The Peggy Mount Calamity Hour is a free podcast from Michael Media which holds production copyright. Opinions and recollections expressed are not to be taken as fact. The title and credit music is by Dr. Velvet. Audio segments from television programmes are presented for review and informational purposes only under fair use and no ownership of these is claimed or implied by this show. For more information, visit PeggyMountPod.com. And that's golf.